Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. This is the last episode of 2022, and I am answering more of your fertility questions. These specific questions are questions that you called and left on the As A Woman voicemail, and I am going to be answering those today. But first, I want to talk about this week's Fertility in the News, and this was an article published in Psychology Today. Can you quietly quit fertility treatments? Now, I know many people have been talking about quietly quitting when you are removing yourself from a scenario without announcing it. And we have looked at this in other terms, but it's essentially you're showing up to get your paycheck, but really not doing much else. And what does that mean when it comes to fertility treatments? This article is shifting quiet quitting to saying you're feeling burned out. You're just going through the motions of what is being told to you without really putting in the effort or the emotional energy. Typically, this is coming from burnout or stress or fear, right? Fear of not having success. So some of the questions that the article first says you should ask yourself, am I withdrawing from friends and family because I don't want to answer how I am? I don't want to deal with the questions. I don't want to hear other people's advice or their stories or see pregnant people. Number two, am I avoiding going through more treatment because I feel too emotionally exhausted? And number three, am I showing up for appointments, but giving up hope? Showing up because I'm supposed to, but I don't think this is going to work. If you answer yes to any of these, you actually might be quiet quitting or having some burnout. And this is actually going to increase the likelihood that you do quit treatment. And this is very fascinating because we know based on prior studies, even in people who have insurance coverage and could financially afford to keep doing fertility treatments, one of the top causes is emotional strain. That is the top cause for walking away and not having success or not adding to your family. So even though You might hear this and say, yeah, this sounds really normal or this sounds like me. So what? Infertility is hard. It is not easy. It doesn't matter. What we actually know is the further you get in this burnout or this quiet quitting avenue, the more likely you are to quit altogether and walk away from it. And so we really want you to intervene and take a moment, even if you for real quit for a few months to connect back with the process. Our goal is to help you have a baby and ultimately help you grow your family. 
So the article does have five ways to deal with fertility burnout and hopefully reduce quiet quitting and quitting fertility treatments altogether. The first one is setting boundaries and take breaks. I really think this is important. Focus less on the future, spend some time in the moment, take a month or two totally off from fertility and just focus on yourself. I have seen patients come back and make huge strides after taking some time for themselves. Number two, remember your why or remember your goal. What is it you really want to be? Put yourself in that mindset to imagine your life when this occurs. And sometimes recommitting to that goal can help you survive or tolerate the emotional ups and downs that really do come with fertility treatments and the physical changes. Number three, find the connection. The whole last podcast episode or one recent one was about getting a fertility second opinion and something that I said over and over, your fertility doctor and team in your clinic, that's a relationship. You need to number one, believe in your team. Number two, trust them that they have your best interest at heart and on their mind. And number three, connect with them. If you don't feel connected, that's your top source of support. We see people who go through fertility treatments day in and day out. You may be the only person in your life who is going through this. So lean on us. If we're not accessible to you, have a conversation and talk to us. Maybe it's something that can change and maybe it's not. Maybe there's communication differences. We use the portal. You need a phone call. That doesn't work with the clinic structure. Maybe that's a good time to get another opinion and change the environment. Number four, connect to other people in your life wisely. So I think this is really good. I'm just going to read it here. Making sure that you connect with friends and family is important because social contact in your daily life is a natural antidote to burnout, but choose your contacts wisely. Make sure they are good listeners who are not easily distracted or not judgmental. Negativity is contagious and you need to be lifted up and not brought down. I think that's just so essential right there. You can love somebody and not be able to connect with them at the moment because of your circumstances. And that is okay. And if they are a good friend, they should understand. Maybe it's your best friend and they're pregnant. It's just too hard for you. Maybe it's somebody who failed fertility treatments and they're just super negative. This is an okay time to draw boundaries and not be around people who are not adding in the sum positive to you where you are right now. And number five, catch more Z's getting sleep. I've said this a lot, but getting sleep, sleep is when your body has cellular repair. It is when everything can come together and fix whatever is going on. And if you do not give your body time to have repair, you'll have increased inflammation and increased stress and decreased energy. You need to set up a bedtime routine, put your phone somewhere else. Do not scroll the TikTok. Do not do these other things. Have a good wake up routine. Go to bed and wake up around the same time every day, no matter what is going on. Remember that fertility treatments should not be your life. So even though you can step away from certain things, having other things that bring you joy should and are very important. I know that this time of the year can extremely emphasize what you might feel like is missing. I've had miscarriages this time of year. I've had loss. I have looked at friends and family with jealousy, even though I'm so happy for them. 
And so I know the holidays and the start of a new year often bring that really close to the surface, but try to turn the narrative and find some joy in those moments because this is still your life, no matter how it goes. One way or another, this chapter of your life, this season will end. So if you love Christmas, try to enjoy all the other things you love about Christmas. Believe that you'll be the one with the family before you know it. Celebrate the joy of other children. Enjoy giving gifts. Watch a bunch of Christmas movies and stay home. Bake cookies. Find something that really resonates with you that you can still find joy in, even if you're not quite at the stage you were hoping to. I really loved this article. And again, it resonated with me because I hate seeing people walk away from treatment because they didn't have the emotional support that they needed. Ultimately, not everybody will have success, but the vast majority will if we continue and stay on the road and the journey. All right. Well, let's answer some of your questions. When you have a question to be answered, you can ask them on Instagram Mondays at Natalie Crawford MD. I will answer some of those on Instagram and save others for fertility's sake, our weekly Q&A at the end of every episode. However, quarterly, we're doing live Q&As where you can call into the voicemail. And that's what this episode is. These are my favorite because I just love hearing your questions. The voicemail number 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672. You can call and leave your voicemail and hopefully we will be able to answer it. All right, let's dive in. Hi, Dr. Crawford. My name is Paula, and I just wanted to say I have been listening to your podcast every other day now. The question I have for you is, what is the correlation between AMH results versus antra follicle count? Is one better than the other, and should I be focused on one more than the other? I'm planning for my first round of IVF, and my AMH level has gone from 2.5 to 0.8 in a span of 11 months. I'm 35 years old. The decrease has certainly made me worried, but when I went to my ultrasound, my doctor did say I have 16 follicles, and he was happy about that. Could you please explain the correlation between AMH and antra follicle count and why such a drastic decrease in a span of 11 months could happen. Thank you again, Dr. Crawford, for all you do. I hope you answer this question. Thank you so much. All right, this is a really good question, and I do find that people are confused about this very often. AMH is a blood test, anti-malarian hormone. Officially, it's made from the granulosa cells that surround all of the follicles. Remember that when you have more eggs inside your vault, more eggs are released every month, there are more follicles, therefore higher AMH. AMH does live in your bloodstream a little bit longer, but it does appear to be sensitive and susceptible to some things in the world around you. A good example is birth control pills. If you're taking birth control pills, you often might have a lower AMH than reality. This is a suppressive effect of the birth control pill on those granulosa cells. And if you stop the pill and recheck it, you'll see a value that is closer to normal or normal for your antral follicle count. It doesn't mean that the birth control pill is making you run out of eggs faster, but it is suppressing the production of AMH. Ultimately, there's probably other things that suppress the production of AMH that we do not know. I use AMH to categorize, meaning 
Are you normal, above average, below average, or low? Understanding that month to month, there is going to be a different number of eggs that are released from the vault in the ovary. In general, when you have more eggs, more come out every month. And when you have less eggs, less come out every month. In a natural cycle, one of these eggs ovulates and the rest of them die. So AMH or antral follicle count do not influence success rates of natural fertility in any way. However, AMH and antral follicle count are correlated with IVF success. Because an antral follicle count is reflective of this single month, it, however, though, is a more true number of what we might be able to get from an IVF cycle. What I tell patients in this is that every month there is going to be some natural fluctuation. Even if you have perfectly normal values and we say 16 follicles is the average, one month you might have 16, one month 18, one month 14, one month 20, one month 15, one month 10, one month 13. Your AMH, each of those months would be different. And it very well could swing from 2.5 to 0.9 really quickly. We generally say we see fluctuations of AMH up to 30% that are perfectly normal. Granted, there could be some decline that is happening as we get older, but I agree if I saw 16 follicles, which is a normal number for a 35-year-old, I would be less concerned about an AMH that one time came back randomly low. I might be slightly more inclined to use higher doses of medications than I would if your AMH was two and a half, but it's not going to change the plan nor would I anticipate it changing what I expect from the number of eggs that you get, which is ultimately the most important thing for IVF. So one, there are things that influence AMH that can suppress granulosa cells. I don't think we have a full list of them. If you were on birth control pills at any time, that could definitely do it. Number two, I actually lean heavier on your follicle count than your AMH. I see people who have it the other way. They have a really robust AMH, but we see a lower follicle count. And I don't tend to see them making follicles consistent with their AMH. They tend to make consistent with their follicle count when we do further IVF studies. So to me, when we're talking about IVF and the plan for IVF, your actual follicle count carries more merit than your AMH, although I use them in conjunction. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No life shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. 
And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Hi, Dr. Crawford. My name is Taylor, and I'm hoping that you might be able to help me with a question that I haven't been able to find the answer to through research or with consulting other OBGYN doctors. A little backstory on me. I was diagnosed with PCOS back in 2012. I've been both on birth control and spironolactone, um, and I actually came off both medications about a year and a half ago in hopes of preparing my body for pregnancy. I have all the textbook symptoms of PCOS, excluding those that deal with insulin resistance. Um, but one really frustrating symptom that I've been dealing with uh, for the last couple of years is low libido. I've consulted with numerous doctors over the last few years, and they seem to chalk it up to long-lasting effects of birth control and spironolactone. However, I feel like being off of those medications for over a year should result in seeing a change. Um, I've seen a naturopath. She's prescribed me with natural products, but none of, seen, none of them seem to help. So all of this to say, um, I've been speaking with my fertility doctor about starting ovulation induction soon, but I'm wondering if pairing ovulation induction with an IUI would be an okay option for me, seeing as my low libido does not make intercourse pleasurable. Um, I don't want the baby making process to be stressful. And I've listened to many of your podcast episodes that state that IUI is most helpful for those with unexplained infertility, but I'm wondering if it may be a good option for someone like me with low libido in conjunction with ovulation induction drugs. Sorry for the mouthful, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of a backstory. Um, I'm hoping to hear an answer from you soon, and I really appreciate the helpful advice and information that you share weekly. Thank you. All right, this is another really good one. So I do also see patients who have PCOS kind of counterintuitively end up having very low libido. It likely is due to some of the things you mentioned, like birth control pills and spironolactone, which both change your natural estrogen and testosterone, but also some people just have lower libido or I think because you weren't able to experience maybe a normal libido because you were treating your medical disease, you never really developed that side of your libido or feeling like having intercourse or feeling ready for it, or potentially there could be pain or other things associated with it few things to answer the question at hand. Yes, absolutely. I love adding an IUI in for anybody with ovulation induction. And personally, I offer it to all of my patients. I might say it does not change your chance of success. If you have PCOS and the sperm counts are normal and you don't ovulate, I need to make you ovulate. You could have timed intercourse or we could do an IUI. Reasons to do an IUI might be erectile dysfunction, 
low libido on a male end, libido or pain on the female end to decrease stress in the relationship, to try to work on making intercourse more pleasurable and less of a job, or to make sure that we're taking care of timing and just not leaving anything up for question or if somebody's traveling and we need to free some sperm. There's many reasons there why we might choose to do an IUI in conjunction with ovulation induction. So that is a perfectly appropriate thing to ask for and be honest and open with your fertility doctor about. I do want to say that often women are not addressing their low libido and not in a world where they feel comfortable truly discussing it. This often takes therapy. It can take sex therapy. It can take toys. Sometimes you have to do almost like sexual training to work on getting your libido. One thing we know about the vagina is that estrogen is really important for the elasticity of the cells. So if you're on birth control pills, yes, you do often have a different estrogen and that can change the integrity of your vaginal mucosa. Some people doesn't bother them. Other people do notice a difference and they do notice both a drop in libido and an increase in discomfort or it takes them a lot more foreplay to be ready. That being said, sometimes vaginal estrogen can help. Even in people who are on birth control pills, sometimes a vaginal estrogen can help the circumstance. But also libido is one of those things where if you don't use it, you're going to lose it for women specifically, meaning trying to learn your body, trying to be comfortable with it, even yourself, even without a partner can be a really important part of trying to improve the libido for the long run, right? It's maybe not going to matter for our short-term goal of getting pregnant, but I do find that too often women are okay dismissing this part of themselves or their life. And this is something very natural that can really add to the quality of your life and your relationships. So on a side note, really consider therapy around this and starting to explore options that might make you uncomfortable, but in the long run could really result in you being happier. But yes, an IUI is perfectly fine. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I have a question about estrogen in the luteal phase. I'm my first cycle doing IUI with letrozole and a trigger shot as my protocol. I noticed that letrozole tanked my estrogen level, and I know that's the point of letrozole to reduce estrogen in order to grow more follicles, but I noticed that it's pretty low now in my luteal phase, around 120 nanograms per milliliter, but some days as low as 30 nanograms per milliliter. My question is, do I need to supplement with a form of estrogen in the luteal phase, like a patch or a pill? If it's helpful to know, I am currently supplementing with progesterone after ovulation. Thanks for answering my question. This is interesting. No, you do not need to supplement with estrogen. I'm also curious, why are we testing estrogen and how do we know these levels? Letrozole does work and it's a long-lasting medication that works by decreasing estrogen levels in the periphery, in the bloodstream. It's an aromatase inhibitor. Your body's still making estrogen. Uterus is still exposed to estrogen. However, it is getting gobbled up. And when you do letrozole, we usually use it for five days. That decrease in estrogen sends a pulse to your brain to tell your brain to send out more FSH. And this helps you ovulate. When we use estrogen, I never check estrogen levels. Even if it's an IVF cycle or an embryo transfer, estrogen to me, it's now unreadable. That blood level means nothing to me. And if you're post-IUI, that blood level means nothing to you. Your uterus was already exposed to estrogen. It doesn't matter that the long-lasting effects of aromatase inhibitor are eating it up in your bloodstream. 
because estrogen in your bloodstream is not important for the job at hand, which is implantation. I do agree with progesterone. We usually use that with ovulation induction. That's totally a fine medication. But we purposefully use letrozole when we want estrogen levels in the blood low. So think about somebody who has breast cancer. They have estrogen-sensitive breast cancer. We're trying to go through IVF to save embryos. I'm going to put them on letrozole, and now their estrogen's unreadable to me, so I'm just going to follow their follicles. But I'm decreasing the circulating estrogen, which is really important because I want less estrogen to feed breast cancer cells. However, in somebody who's doing ovulation induction cycles, low estrogen is expected in the luteal phase. It should not be checked. And we know that letrozole has very high live birth rates, higher than even Clomid for ovulation induction. It is a very safe and acceptable medication, first line for people with PCOS and in no protocol is estrogen supplementation needed. On the flip end, I will say occasionally I give estrogen in the luteal phase after Clomid, not empirically, meaning not just here, give you estrogen or not from checking blood levels, but because Clomid is a CIRM, it's a selective estrogen receptor modulator. It's like a cousin of letrozole, but instead of eating estrogen in the bloodstream, it binds to estrogen receptors. And the brain, this is awesome, binds to estrogen receptors. The brain says, oh my gosh, there's no estrogen. And it sends out a higher signal of FSH, therefore getting you to ovulate. But there are estrogen receptors in the uterus, right? The endometrium is responsive to estrogen. And so some people who have Clomid or who use Clomid actually will end up with a thin uterine lining. That's one of the negative side effects. So if I was monitoring you on ultrasound and you had a thin lining on Clomid, that is the case where I might put somebody on estrogen in the luteal phase. So not based on a blood level, but more based on what the lining looked like. Hope that helped you understand. Hi, Dr. Crawford, longtime fan of your podcast and YouTube channel. My questions are about egg donation and surrogacy. I am interested in being an egg donor and or a surrogate and wondering how do you recommend someone go about pursuing these? What factors do you recommend considering what the process may look like in general, those kinds of things? I am a carrier for Tay-Sachs and had idiopathic polyhydramnios in my second pregnancy. Would these deter or prevent me from either option? Interested in what you have to say. Thank you. Bye. All right. Anybody who wants to consider helping other people have a family, that is such an extremely gracious gift of yourself. And I respect you tremendously. Deciding to undergo bag donation or surrogacy are really two different things and thinking through what you may qualify for. In general, egg donors need to be young, typically not over age 35, although we really do prefer 30 or younger. Genetics might hold you back, but nowadays we can genetically test the sperm source. And as long as they are not a carrier for Tay-Sachs, that typically is not going to be restrictive or a carrier for whatever disease the egg carrier may have. Because you may not be doing directed donation, you may not know what the sperm source is, but that just means that the testing company would recommend that intended parents get screened before selecting a donor. And that is very standard. When you donate your eggs, you essentially go through IVF. You will get screened. You'll have a physical and a history. You will then go through an IVF cycle, taking injections. You'll go through an egg retrieval under anesthesia. That whole process usually takes about one to two months. And then you're done. Now, it does depend if you're thinking of donating to an egg bank. These are programs where you're a good candidate. They'll just put you through, freeze your eggs, you're done. Or are you going into a database where patients are doing fresh cycles and you're waiting to find out that a patient is picking you? If I were a donor, I'd probably prefer the bank option because 
you're going through the process. It's on your timeline, not somebody else's timeline. And you get paid. The process is over. You're helping people. Wonderful. If you are going through a fresh cycle, you often are timing it with the recipient. And it can sometimes be a lot more complex and have less flexibility. A carrier or surrogate, it's a very different thing. That's when you're carrying somebody else's embryo. This is a wonderful gift. It's obviously a much bigger commitment because that's going to be a 10 to 12 month commitment because you have to go through testing and an embryo transfer and then carry the pregnancy. There's definitely going to be a legal component to this where you'll have to have legal agreements with the intended parents. You know the intended parents if you're a carrier, whereas if you're an egg donor, it's anonymous. I mean, nothing's truly anonymous with third-party genetic testing, but you don't get a say-so over any of it. But for a carrier, you know that family, you have a relationship with them. And I do know that a lot of people find that very satisfying to know they played a role in another couple being able to have a baby who couldn't and, and to know that couple. You must love pregnancy. Usually you have to be done with your family. Your spouse will have to be interviewed too if you're married. Obviously, pregnancy is not health neutral. You will want to make sure you went through your prior pregnancy without complications. Reviewing those records is pretty standard. But ultimately, it is a much bigger investment. The compensation is typically much, much greater if you're a carrier than if you donate your eggs. Both of them are amazing gifts. I love where your heart is at and that you want to help other people have a family. And if you pursue any of these, I know that anybody would be so, so fortunate for this gift that you are truly giving. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Hi, Dr. Crawford. I've been following you for a while and you have helped me ask educated questions of my OBGYN and helped me on my fertility journey as far as knowing what to ask. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have just been diagnosed with a uterine septum shape and I'm feeling really scared and I just want to know, will I be able to have children and what is my prognosis? Again, uterine septum. Thank you so much for your time. I hope that I get my question answered. I appreciate you. Bye-bye. All right. I know having a uterine septum or hearing you have a birth defect of your uterus, that can be really quite alarming, but a uterine septum is the most common birth defect of your uterus. And if there was going to be one to have, this is what I would pick. It is something that we can fix. So I love that. Uterine septum. Well, I guess I should back up. The uterus is formed in two different buds when you're a baby inside your mom. These buds include the top one-third of the vagina, the cervix, the uterus, and a fallopian tube. These two buds elongate, fuse together, 
and then a midline portion reabsorbs, connecting the two sides into what we traditionally know as the uterus. You can have failure on any parts of this process. If you've heard somebody say they have a double uterus, then these two buds never fuse. They just it completely independently formed. So you have two cervical canals, two uteruses, a fallopian tube on each side. You can have one of them fail to develop and the other does, and that's called a unicornuate uterus. You can have them partially fuse, and that's called a bicornuate. Or you can have complete fusion, but failure of full reabsorption of the midline septum, and that is the uterine septum. When you have a uterine septum, you typically have no idea. You don't have any bleeding abnormalities. There's no issue with tampons. There's no issue with intercourse, but you can find this on an infertility evaluation or if you have pregnancy loss. Uterine septums have been associated with miscarriage. So up to 80% of pregnancies and people with a septum will miscarry. That's a scary number, but fixing a septum is relatively simple. It is a day surgery procedure where you put a camera in the uterus and you cut out the septum with scissors up to the level of the fundus or the top of the uterus. You then typically will put a little balloon in the uterus, post-operatively take some hormones and antibiotics, and then you'll do imaging to make sure everything is healed. Now, when you have a septum, I believe the moment we find it, we should take it out before you get pregnant again. I'm very biased. I'm a fertility doctor. I went through pregnancy loss myself. I would not wish a loss on anybody if there was anything we could do to prevent it. There are other doctors who will say that some septums might be inconsequential and you should have to have a miscarriage first before you have to get a septum removed. I think that's a little paternalistic. That would not be my style or my choice. And if a doctor told you that, I would recommend a second opinion. But if somebody's recommending to you that you get your septum removed, absolutely. That's what I would do if I wanted to get pregnant. So overall, Even though it's scary, you should feel comforted that this is the most common birth defect and this is one that we can do something about. Hi, um, my question is, if you have a patient with mild bilateral hydrosalpines, do you ever not recommend surgical removal? Thank you. I actually always recommend surgical removal if we have a hydrosalpinx. It is a reflection that the tube is non-functional. It is dilated. It is stagnant. It's going to leak that toxic fluid back into the uterus. But even more than any of that, we've now increased the risk of an ectopic pregnancy, which is a tubal pregnancy substantially. To me, that is something that I absolutely want to avoid. I want to avoid it for you. I don't want you don't have to have emergency surgery or get chemotherapy. And ultimately you have very low chances of conceiving with a pregnancy in the uterus. So I would recommend removal and then IVF. Also in my experience, when patients try to undergo surgery to fix the hydrosalpines, things end up usually being worse than they started. And then they're undergoing salpingectomy or removal of those fallopian tubes. So they're having two surgeries instead of just one. So my professional recommendation is to always remove hydrosalpines and then look towards IVF or InvoCell, but essentially mechanisms of conceiving that do not require the fallopian tubes. Hello. I would like to ask a question in regards to exercise when trying to conceive specifically during the two-week wait. What kind of exercise is best um, and what exercises to avoid? For instance, like cardio or HIIT exercises, 
also um, saunas. Are, is it safe for women to go into saunas during the two-week period or in trying to conceive in general? Any suggestions or advice would be very helpful. Thank you. Ultimately, if you're just trying to conceive naturally, you have very few restrictions on the two-week wait. In the two-week wait, if we review what is happening, this is the two-week time period between ovulation and when you could first get a positive pregnancy test. The first week of this, essentially nothing is happening. An embryo is forming and developing in the fallopian tube. Nothing, heat or exercise or anything would impact that. The second week of the two-week wait is when, if implantation is happening, it is starting to occur. Similarly, there's no organs being formed. There is very little that your body is doing that is going to influence if that embryo implants or not. Ultimately, when you're pregnant, yes, I want you to avoid like heat, hot yoga, hot tub saunas. When you're pregnant, I want you to be really mindful about not stressing your body out too much. If you're doing fertility treatments, you're definitely going to have some restrictions, mostly based on the size of your ovaries or the timing of the things that we do and not wanting you to have ovarian torsion. But if you're just trying naturally, I let my patients be totally normal in the two-week wait. Go for a run, do yoga, do weights, whatever you normally do. If you are training for a marathon or you're doing something really intense and you have the flexibility, I would prefer your longer runs or your more intense workouts to be in your follicular phase over your luteal. That's also just leaning towards your body's natural desires. But ultimately, either are fine. So it's not going to harm a potential pregnancy or stop it from implanting based on the exercise you're doing. So feel free to carry on with whatever makes sense for you. All right. One final question. We're not doing for fertility sake since I'm answering all of these voicemails. Again, you can call and leave a voicemail for a future episode 657-229-3672. And please send us feedback if you are loving these episodes. Sophia, thank you so much for your kind words. And I often see this where somebody's just waiting to meet the 12 month mark, but they know something's not right. And your intuition is there, meaning most couples in your age range should get pregnant or they have a chance of getting pregnant 20 to 25% per month. So the fact that you haven't gotten pregnant after 10 months and the sperm is normal, and all of that is concerning that you might be falling into the unexplained infertility category. 
I do not force patients to wait a 12 month mark, meaning you've already gotten some workup done. I would talk to a fertility doctor about what the treatment options are. And the treatment options typically for unexplained infertility are ovulation induction with an IUI. So medications like clomidor letrozole plus an IUI or IVF. These things will depend on your family planning goals, your insurance coverage, your AMH or your antral follicle count as to what you do. Most of the time in your age range, people would start with an ovulation induction and IUI option because unless your ovarian reserve is low, you still have time to grow the family of your desire, most likely. However, if your AMH is low and you're in this situation, that's a really strong indication to consider IVF because maybe you want to save embryos from this really awesome, good quality that you have at a young age. I don't make patients wait magic timelines. Remember, these are numbers that come from population-based studies, just about when it is most cost-effective to evaluate and treat people. Ultimately, you're a person, you deserve to be able to have an evaluation. If let's say you have insurance coverage that won't kick in until you've been trying for a year and you have a couple months left and you want to wait to use that insurance, totally understand, then I would say this is a great time to just focus on everything else. Really try to decrease inflammation in your life, eat lots of fruits and veggies, avoid processed foods and sugars, really try to get a good amount of sleep, try to exercise, take your vitamins and supplements, track your cycles time intercourse with when you're ovulating and be able to lead into the next few months in that lowest inflammatory state possible, hopefully get pregnant. But if you don't, then you're lined up for success when it comes to whatever fertility treatment your doctor may recommend. Also, if you haven't gotten your workup done with a fertility clinic, maybe it was your OBGYN, totally fine. This is a great moment to call your clinic because often it can take four to six weeks to get on the books. You have to get records and fill out paperwork. So it might be something you want to call now and get on the books. If you get pregnant, cancel it. But otherwise, then you have that there. So then you're not waiting an additional two months once you make that one-year mark. All right, friends, I appreciate you so much. I personally love these fertility Q&A episodes. They are my absolute favorite. So keep it up and coming. Reminder, you can leave a voicemail at 657-229-3672. And you can ask questions for Fertility Sake Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Some of those will be answered on Insta and some of those will be answered every week here on the pod. We will be taking a break the last week of December. So next time you hear me, it'll be 2023. Thank you all for listening to As A Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman. <laughs>